Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash spookshow. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Sometimes, here on the All-American Spook Show Horror Podcast, we pause to focus on the masters, subjects, and icons that make the horror genre so great. So join us this week for the Spook Show Spotlight. Hello and welcome to yet another edition of the All-American Spook Show Horror Podcast. I am Josh and I'm joined here with Donnie. Hey. And the Professor Smoke. What's up? Uh, Will couldn't be with us. He's on assignment as per usual, but... Uh, we actually have a special guest here in, in, in quote-unquote studio here today. We're uh, talking over Zoom. But we have film historian, author Paul Talbot. Uh, Smoke, I'll kind of let you uh, introduce him a little bit since you kind of brought him to the table. Like, uh, what you guys, uh, your history together, and uh, or, you know, at least your past or whatever, where you rub shoulders in the past. Uh, yeah, yeah. We met through, well, there's a filmmaker in the, in the uh, Columbia area named Christopher Bickle. And uh, Chris used to put on at uh, this local uh, downtown movie theater, independent movie theater, something called Lowbrow Friday, or First Friday Lowbrow Cinema, which was the first Friday of every month he would play a grindhouse uh, exploitation type film. He did that for a few years, a number of years. And one of those movies, the first movie I believe that I met Paul on was, uh, he was, you know, he's a friend of Chris's and Chris had uh, brought Paul in to do the uh, intro, what he would get to introduce the movie and talk about the movie a little bit, 10 to midnight. I believe that was the first one. And then after that was uh, Exterminator 2, I believe. Two canon films, of course. Paul had an interesting uh, intro and interesting <laughs> props, shall we say, for uh, the 10 to Midnight movie. Uh, that, was, uh, that, was, that was a great intro. It was pretty funny. Yeah. But yeah, I'll let Paul come on. And uh, so that, that's, our, that's our history together. And then, uh, you know, like I said, Christopher Bickle's kind of that. Uh, he's, he went on to do filmmaking himself. Now he doesn't do the first Friday uh, lowbrow cinema thing anymore because he went on to do bigger and better things as far as uh, writing and directing and producing movies so uh yeah like uh, basically kind of what we're going to be doing today is uh we're going to be talking about charles bronson mostly but we'll also be talking about canon films you know what you uh love and hate i guess about canon films because <laughs> i'm sure everybody's got the love hate thing going with canon or mostly love probably most of us i guess but uh you know we'll talk a little bit about that but in particular we'll talk about charles bronson i guess with you because you actually wrote what you said two books about charles bronson right about his career in life uh that's right yeah i've written two books the first one was uh called bronson's loose the making of the death wish films and for that book i covered all five of the death wish films i interviewed many of the uh directors writers producers actors and that book uh did pretty well for me i enjoyed doing it and then uh i guess about five years later oh actually it was close to 10 years later i did a follow-up which was called bronson's loose again on the set with Charles Bronson. And for that one, I uh, covered the movies that he made after the original Death Wish. And again, what I tried to do with all of that is to uh, interview as many of the producers, directors, writers, actors that I could find who were still alive. And that's what's very important. We have to find these people and talk to them while they're still alive before they pass away, before we lose their stories. And I was very fortunate that a lot of them uh, spoke to me because many of the people that I spoke with have passed on since then. Hmm. 
So it was very important to capture these stories while these people were, were still alive. Yeah, that, that's cool, though. What is your history with uh, Charles Bronson, you know, other than just being a huge fan? Right. It was, I came up, um, I grew up in the 1970s, a, a very good time for movie fans. You know, we, I grew up in a town called Beverly, Massachusetts. There was a theater that I could walk to. Back then, the movies would open in the big cities, and then a few months later, they would play in the smaller theaters as um, double features. So when I was in the 1970s, watched a lot of movies on TV, my mother and I would always watch uh, the Elvis Presley movies. And one day we watched one called Kid Galahad, in which Bronson plays a boxer. Charles Bronson plays his trainer. That was the first time I saw Charles Bronson, uh, very intrigued by him. And then a few days later, uh, my father and I watched my father's favorite movie, which was The Great Escape, uh, 19, early 1960s, 1963 movie about, uh, it's a World War II film. Charles Bronson is one of the main characters in that. So seeing those two movies very quickly made me a lifelong fan. And then the first movie I saw in the theater in 1975, Bronson movie called Breakout. I was able to walk to the movie theater and see that film. So that era then made me a lifelong fan. Bronson fan. I guess fast forward along the way here. Did did you ever have a chance to meet uh, Charles Bronson? Yeah, unfortunately not. You know, I don't. I never had a chance to meet him in person. And then um, I was never once. And then once I started writing things, uh, I was never able to get an, an interview with him. By the time I started getting into uh, doing research and interviewing people, he unfortunately was uh, in stages of Alzheimer's. Mm. So. He was very reclusive anyway. I don't know if he would have talked to me anyway, but uh, long story short, no, I unfortunately was never able to actually interact with Charles Bronson myself. Yeah, because I think he passed in 2003, I think it was, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. yeah. That, that sucks. It, that would have been cool to, uh, it would have been a cool one to meet for sure. Right. But right. at least you got to uh, talk to a lot of the people that he worked with and everything like that. So that's kind of cool, like a an extension of kind of getting to meet him, right? Right. Trying to uh, kind of like piece his life story together, not through him, but through the people that knew him. Oh uh, yeah. Well, as far as, uh, I'll ask you now, this, this question doesn't necessarily pertain. Well, it might, it might end up referencing Charles Bronson, but I was going to ask you, uh, Paul, what was your first Canon films movie that you saw? Whether that be in the theater or on tape or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge Canon fan. I was a huge Canon fan starting back in the day. I used to, of course, see a lot of the movies in the theater, then rent them on um, videotape. And it was a while before I started, you know, before I started realizing what canon was. So I, I probably, uh, looking back, must have been, I think, uh, Schizoid, which is with um, Klaus, uh, Klaus Kinski. Oh, yeah. I saw that one on television. I think I saw that one on Late Night on HBO. So I think that was probably the first one. And then... When I first started realizing who they were, when they started getting publicity, I guess Death Wish 2, I saw that in a movie theater. So I think that was probably, I guess, the first one I saw in a theater. And then, of course, once I recognized that famous Canon logo, when I would see that oh, in the yeah. beginning, then I, be then I became a fan and started realizing that, um, hey, this Canon, this is a, a company that puts out a lot of interesting movies. And, of course, one important thing is this was before the Internet. Nowadays, we know every single movie that's coming out. We can research every movie coming out. Back then, we didn't. There was more of a mystery about these things. It was like these trade magazines you could find, but there wasn't too much of mainstream stuff. So there was a mystery about these different movie theaters, these smaller movie theaters. Yeah, me growing up during that time period, I was maybe came along a little bit later. It was uh, 
83, I saw breaking in the, in the theater. It was the first one I saw in that era. I don't know if it was, you know, I didn't notice that these, I mean, I noticed there's a difference in these movies and I love canon films, but I didn't really notice that I didn't put it together that how they were like low budget and coming in. I mean, it came out of the Hollywood system. So they were running right up against other Hollywood movies. I never thought of, you know, these are just, you know, kind of cheese ball action movies. I just saw them in the same light as I saw any other Hollywood movie at the time. Right. They, but they were definitely different having you know, action packed and everything. Right. And then those early ones, of course, Breakin was their biggest hit. That one, of course, played everywhere. That had a major distributor putting it out. And as you said, they were, you know, these were not, uh, they had good budgets to them. So they certainly were, the early ones certainly were comparable to uh, pretty much any other action movie uh, ever made. And Breaking, of course, was a big hit. That was an important movie at the time because that did actually capture um, a lot of that, the culture that was going on. You know, there was before... It was still when break dancing was first coming out. Oh, yeah. So that movie really did capture a lot of the authentic street culture and the fashions of the time. And what I thought was interesting about it later after the fact was that most of those movies, well, that was really one of the first ones that came out, but some of the ones that came out directly after that were set in New York. So, and most of them were in New York. So you get most of that New York culture from the other movies, but you don't get too many LA ones. And that was what was interesting about it. I thought too, seeing right. the LA side of that. Especially like uh, those New York setted, you know, settings uh, in those movies in the late seventies and early eighties, where it's like before they clean New York up. So like all those movies, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just kind of yeah. just kind of <laughs> grimy. The the one the one calling oh, card, yeah, 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 the whole Forty Second Street and everything, yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> the the one calling card I always notice with like Canon films is like I, maybe it's just me, I don't know. That there's always like somewhat of a glow to it. Does anybody else ever notice that? Like when you're watching, you know, like that's kind of like. Maybe not every single one of them, but most of them, there's like this weird kind of haze glow yeah, maybe, to the movies. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, lighting, you know, their lighting design. I'm, I'm not so sure about cinematography, like how if they had any sort of cinematographers that followed, you know, in-house canon cinematographers or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were quite a few of the uh, the regular uh, directors of photography that they used. And uh, one thing Josh was saying, um, I know what you're saying, kind of that hazy look. That was popular. Um in the 1980s, in the movies, and very much so in the music videos that used to be on television, mm -hmm. they would use um, uh, a lot of uh, bright, bright colors. You know, they would put like the the plastic gels in front of the camera to give that bright, colorful look. And they would also do kind of like uh, use a smoke machine. They would put a smoke machine and then, uh, you know, blow fan it so it would kind of dissipate, but that little bit of uh, haziness was still there. So that's kind of like what um, what Josh was saying. That was that, uh, I guess, like you said, kind of like a almost like a halo, kind of like a glow type yeah, of thing. I actually did have a question. Um, um, as a uh, uh, well, former filmmaker, I, I freelance for about five years, but um, and then you know, just kind of life called. <laughs> but uh, um, but no, like, how'd you get into film history? Like, what, what's like, I guess, kind of more of your background? Yeah, it was kind of like, um, you know, when I was a little boy, I used to watch the movies and the TV shows. And then you become fascinating saying, um, how did this get made? How does it get put together? These people in these movies, of course, they're not really these characters. What are they like? How do these things happen? How do the special effects happen? So um, just trying to find out, uh, what was going on behind the scenes is what led me to becoming a 
a film historian. And again, back then, when I started, we did not have the internet. I had to, uh, you know, go to the actual physical library. You'd go to a section of movie books, pluck them off the shelf and flip through them, trying to find something that would answer your question. Mm. That would answer the questions I had. So you, so. you, you almost had to kind of, uh, if you really were into a particular subject, like such as that, you almost had to uh, have to kind of become a historian of it. Because you would have yep. to do so much research and, and stuff, right? Like you would just kind of have to dive into it a little harder. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you had to, um, uh, you know, nowadays, if we think of a movie, we just whip out our phone, pull up Wikipedia, <laughs> yeah. and any movie ever made, you can find a little story that answers all your questions instantaneously. Whereas uh, back then, it, you know, th there was newspapers, of course, but newspapers were hard to, the older newspapers were hard to find. Now, of course, all those newspapers are now online, and that's, yeah fantastic for me because i can find these newspapers from decades ago that used to be thrown away now they've been all that history is now not only preserved but at our fingertips yeah no, i'm sure you're probably a, a cult movie fan of course and as well as a horror fan and speaking on that uh <laughs> the fact of you know how easy it is now with the internet and how it used to be just going to the video store trying to scour the shelves to find certain things like uh, italian horror movies for instance i was got big into italian horror movies back in the 80s and just trying to find to figure out what movie might even be an Italian horror movie because you couldn't tell because they tried to Americanize everything, make it not look like a foreign film. So, you know, you, you look for Lu Lucio Fulci films and, you know, here's one by this guy named director Lewis Fuller. Right. Yeah, so, hmm. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> so it was a lot of like hunting movies that way. And you might find some other name that looked familiar to you and you would get it on a whim or, you know, you scour the pages. Of, I'd get Fangoria or later Gorzon magazine and you get, columnists like as we've mentioned on the show you know Chaz Balin or somebody who's giving you feeding you some of this information then you can go to the store and look for it and there was something about that now it's, it's it's great having everything at your fingertips now to be able to look up stuff but there was something to be said for that old school way of doing it yeah that was that was fun because it was like almost like uh mysterious in a way because like you said you would go to the video store and you would see this great artwork and maybe a few pictures on the back and but you had no idea where this thing was. And a lot of times you couldn't even tell what year it was made. So yeah, you would yeah. just take your chance and go home and watch it. And sometimes it would be something awful, but a lot of times be something fantastic. And like you said, you'd see a familiar face. You're like, where did I see that woman before? Or where did I see that guy before? And so we would have to, uh, what I used to do, I would watch a movie. I would write down a little synopsis, write down the director and the writer and the actors I recognize. And you could kind of, uh, piece of history together that way. Also fun um, going to the movies back then when we went to the drive-ins and the grindhouses. Again, there was movies that we didn't know who made them. And you would always find some strange, uh, a little a little gem, you know, a movie that you didn't know was going to be good or bad, but yeah. it turned out to be something good, something that we, we would remember. And that's why the canon movies were a lot like that. You would see a lot of actors, like the supporting actors from movie to movie. Why fuss and fret about dinner? Why not have it right here? Yes, this drive-in offers everyone in the family a real picnic treat for dinner. We've got delicious sandwiches with all the trimmings and your other dinner favorites, plus whatever you want to drink, hot or cold. Come early before the show starts, or eat while you're being entertained, or at intermission time. So why fuss? Give your family a tasty dinner at this drive-in. And speaking of speaking of grindhouses, the the very theater that we were that I met Paul in, you know, when he introduced the 
first Friday lowbrow movie of 10 to midnight and Exterminator 2. It's, it's called the Nickelodeon Theater in downtown Columbia, but it used to be the Fox Theater and it was a grindhouse back in the 80s. And I don't know how far back it went as far as being a grindhouse or not. Yeah, the the, uh, the Fox was on, uh, like Brian said, Main Street in Columbia, South Carolina. It started, it was a first run theater, very nice, uh, had a balcony, a great big screen. You could sit on the downstairs or sit in the balcony. And then, of course, as time goes on with television, uh, it became um, a grindhouse where they would show the lesser known movies, a lot of karate movies, action movies, horror films. And I used to go there when I was a teenager, because again, a lot of this stuff hadn't been on television yet. So that's where I would see a lot of the um, grindhouse type movies. I saw a lot of the canon films there, uh, Body and Soul, Exterminator 2, um, a lot of the canon movies I, I saw then. And that would be, and what they actually did, then they put like a floor separating the bottom level from the balcony and put a second screen. So it became a two screen theater whereas it was originally a one-screen elegant theater. So, they actually, that was, so that one they actually did like kind of cut it in half and did like a two-story kind of thing? Exactly, yep. Okay, yeah, because right. a lot of times you would see it like they take one theater and cut it down the middle and like right. make that, one screen over here, one screen over here. Right, that's what they used to do when it was, uh, when there wasn't a balcony, right, they would put a wall in between yeah. and make two theaters side by side. But the Fox was one, it had a balcony, so they made a, they built a floor in between the balcony and the bottom and huh. cut the screen in that way. Yeah, that was fun because, of course, nothing beats, uh, uh, you know, watching these movies together. Of course, we can do that at home. You can have some buddies over um, watching the movie that way. But that was a fun series because, you know, we had a whole bunch of people, strangers getting together, watching these crazy movies. Some had seen them before. Some had never seen them before. So that was a really good time. Yeah. It was really in... Uh, uh, it's good that we get to do stuff like that, you know, come together as a, a community type thing and watch one of these movies. So that that was a really yeah, that good, was a good time. I really I treasured that time. That was a good series. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that yeah, before. Yeah, that. Like certain cer uh, certain movies need to be kind of watched like that. You know, like it's like you said, yeah. it's fun to watch um, them on your own, maybe with a few buddies and a couple beers or something. But it's really cool uh, when you're in a room full of like minded people watching you know the same thing and everybody yeah. just kind of you know enjoying it together so i guess i mean was there anything like you wanted to kind of go down through like about charles bronson or anything you know any interesting tidbits or anything since you know he's we're, we're going to be talking more about canon films um but probably not in particular too much about charles bronson at least until we do the 10 to midnight episode so is there anything maybe you can add about 10 to midnight or just bronson's uh career leading up to that or anything like that uh that uh we can yeah, use, you know know going going in a 10 to midnight yeah, well, you know, Bronson came from uh, uh, absolutely nowhere. You know, he came from uh, a family of coal miners and he got drafted into the army during World War II. And when he came out of World War II, he used the GI Bill to go to acting school, studied acting and started at the bottom, you know, played mostly tiny, tiny bit parts, worked his way into a supporting actor. And then when he was well into his 40s, he went over to uh, Europe and started starring in some movies over there, became a huge star over in Europe and was pretty much still unknown in the United States. And then started eventually started making some movies that were big in the United States as well. So there was a time when he was the biggest movie star in the world. And then he made Death Wish, which was the first movie, actually the only movie 
that was a huge hit in the United States. He had some hits in the United States, but Block, Death Wish was the only one that was an actual uh, bona fide blockbuster. And then he became, uh, you know, one of the most, he was one of the most popular uh, movie stars in the world. And one thing that's good is that he, he's maintained his cult following. You know, one thing that's interesting, it's kind of like music. Sometimes there'll be a band that's really huge and then they'll stay huge, you know, but like, kind of like, you know, like Led Zeppelin, they were huge when they started. They're still huge. They keep building a new audience. Movies and actors are the same way. Some actors are huge. When they come out, then they're kind of forgotten. Same with some movies. Sometimes movies are huge hits and then they're forgotten. But uh, one interesting thing about Bronson is his cult uh, perpetuates. You know, I go to a lot of these uh, movie conventions and I see a lot of very young people, you know, young men in their 20s, and they'll have a Bronson T-shirt on, or some will even have a Bronson uh, tattoo. Huh. So, you know, his cult is continuing with a younger audience. That's so. that's dedication, man. You get uh, any 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 uh, person tattooed on yourself, you know, that's not like a family member or something like that. It's That's dedication. Right. <laughs> right. But I guess it's unsurprising, though, is, you know, is, like you said, is uh, kind of a cult following and as popular as uh, Charles Bronson has become. So is there any interesting things you can tell us about 10 to Midnight before we watch it? And uh, here, well, I think we're going to be watching it next week. So, uh, Anything, uh, maybe some uh, uh, background information or anything interesting you can point out, you know, so we can uh, use that for that? Yeah, uh, 10 to Midnight, uh, released in 1980, uh, it's 82 or 83, I'm drawing a blank right now. That one was interesting because it, it was originally based on the Richard Speck murders. Richard Speck had murdered some women, uh, some nurses in the 1960s, it was a horrible um event and that started as a, a, a story about that and then they got the script got the idea that they have a police detective who's pursuing this serial killer so several different serial killers inspired it also uh Jay Lee thompson who directed and uh created 10 to midnight he didn't want the serial killer to be sleazy looking like richard speck he wanted him to be uh looking like more like ted bundy somebody who would not frighten the women, some of the women would find to be attractive. So that's why the serial killer became attractive in that film. And 10 to midnight, you know, at this point, Bronson was well into his his into his 60s. But 10 to midnight was a really up-to-date, sleazy, slasher-type movie with a lot of nudity, a lot of violence, a lot of shocking material. So that one introduced Bronson to a, a new audience. 10 to Midnight wasn't that big a hit when in the theaters. I think partly because it didn't have a very good ad campaign. The poster just made it look like another Charles Bronson action movie. And of course, the kids weren't really into that at the time. But 10 to Midnight played on HBO and was one of the biggest hits that year on HBO. People who watched it were shocked and were like, what, what is this? So a lot of older male fans saw 10 to Midnight and that rekindled their interest in Charles Bronson. And a lot of younger fans, mostly younger male teenagers, uh, men in college age, that was the first Charles Bronson movie they saw. So that started them as being Charles Bronson fans. And that was uh, Bronson's second film for Canon was 10 to Midnight. And after that, he got a multi-picture deal with them and made a whole bunch of those sleazy action-type films for, for Canon. So the Canon era introduced Bronson to a whole new audience. And one interesting thing about that, 
Uh, like I said earlier, you know, Bronson started uh, acting in the early 1950s. In the early 1960s, he st- in, in the 50s and 60s, he had like some supporting movies and a lot of films that are now considered classics. Then in the late 1960s, he started starring in films made over in Europe. And then in the 1970s, started starring in films made in the United States. And it's interesting because some Bronson fans like myself enjoy all of his work, watch his films from every single era, whereas some other people will only like the films that he was a supporting actor in. Some will only like the European films he were in, and some will only like uh, the canon film. So it's interesting that he has these different levels of of cult following. He'll uh, he, he randomly pops up in a lot of like uh, old TV shows and stuff too, like old westerns and episodes of random shows like Bonanza or something, right? Yeah, he was in uh, uh, many many TV episodes. In fact. Um, some of the best stuff he did was on television. In the 1960s, he played a villain a lot. There's like uh, an early Gunsmoke episode. He plays a villain in that. He's fantastic in that. He was a regular in a couple of series in the 1960s. So uh, as you said, he was in uh, many, many films and television shows before he became a star. So he, he always popped up on television. In fact, in the 1970s, when I was growing up, when he was at his height of popularity in the movies... They would say on TV, they would actually announce that they would, an older movie that has supporting pot in, they would say starring Charles Bronson, making it look like he was the main yeah. figure. Or they'd be like, tonight's episode of Bonanza, special guest star Charles Bronson. They would promote it that way if he was mm-hmm. in the episode. So. In the meantime, it's just a small supporting role and he's barely in it. You know, <laughs> they're just, Usually, yes, yeah, they're quite just, often. Right. They're just selling yeah. his name. And, and also, Paul, if you wanted to plug somewhere, in, you know, where, I know you can get the books from Amazon, I believe, but any, anywhere you want to Anything you want to put out there as far as where you can get yeah. your books from or anything like that? Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, the books are uh, Bronson's Loose. Bronson's, the books are Bronson's Loose, the making of the Death Wish films, which covers the five Death Wish films. I interviewed many of the people involved with those films. The second book is called Bronson's Loose Again, on the set with Charles Bronson. Again, both of those books are filled with uh, pictures, the story behind the film. I describe how every film was created, how it was made, how it was received. So try to make them very entertaining books. And they're all available any place you can buy books. You know, of course, Amazon.com, as always, is probably the most efficient way to get it. You can find it at Amazon.com. Find both of those books. I've also done commentary tracks for uh, many Bronson films and those for the Bronson Blu-rays. And again, you can find those... um, uh, Amazon.com, any place that makes Blu-rays, you can find those. All right. Well, uh, like, like I said, we thank you for coming on. And uh, just a tease for next week, like I said, we're going to be watching the Charles Bronson classic, 10 to Midnight. Um, you know, we, we talked about it uh, there with Paul during the episode, but I'll go ahead and read you the IMDb synopsis because it's very simple, one sentence. An LAPD detective and his rookie partner are on the trail of a psychopathic young man who is murdering young women. Directed by Jay Lee Thompson. So there you go. That's that is from 1983. Like you said uh, earlier in the episode, you were wondering whether it was 82 okay. or 83. That is 83. But um, come back next week for that, and uh, you know we'll we'll uh we'll see what uh we'll, we'll actually have Paul's thoughts on 10 to Midnight, and we'll we'll give him a chance to give a star rating on that one. So uh, for Will and Donnie and the Professor Smoke, I'm Josh. We are the All American Spook Show Horror Podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. As you leave the theater, folks, please be careful. 
Don't let this happen to your car. Be sure to remove the speaker before you leave. If you should accidentally pull a speaker loose, please turn it in at our snack bar or box office. Thank you.